It's Thursday, the 15th of June. In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Adrian Esterman will bring you up to speed on the fifth wave. How do we work with the conflicting advice between Ataji and WHO with regard to boosters? And should we be using antivirals more often? The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19 with leading voices from across Australia, providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. I have no conflicts of interest, and this is what I'll be covering. I'll be looking at the current COVID situation globally um, in Australia. I'll be briefly covering vaccines and antivirals, a little bit about long COVID, and just a couple of thoughts about the current situation. I'll be talking mainly about monupiravir and whether or not you should be prescribing it. Um, The chief uh, scientific officer of Canada has described long COVID as a mass disabling event. If you think about it, we've had 12 million infections in Australia. If you have 10% of people who get infected end up with long-term health problems, um, that's over a million people and they're going to be arriving at your door, unfortunately. And finally, GPs in particular are in an ideal position to protect vulnerable patients, and I'll come to that later on. So let's start with the global situation. And at the moment, and all my data are current, um, Australia uh, has got one of the highest rates of of COVID-19 in the world. And Australia and New Zealand have the highest rates in the Southern Hemisphere. In terms of Australia, the ACT and Tasmania have the highest incidence rates, but they're on, based on very small numbers. Um, after that, it's South Australia uh, and New South Wales. But have a look at this. New Zealand has got a horrendous rate. Um, so they put, it pales, uh, our numbers pale into significance based, uh, compared to New Zealand. Now, I'd like to talk about, a little about the current um, subvariants that are circulating. Um, as you can all remember, when we had the original Wuhan strain, um, WHO decided to use Greek letters for further variants. We had alpha, beta, gamma, delta, etc. Then we hit, hit new, and WHO decided it was too much like the English word, so they skipped it. Then after new came Xi, and WHO decided that they couldn't use the uh, Chinese president's name for a subvariant. <laughs> and so uh, after that, we had Omicron which we had in about November of 2021. And since then, we've had no new variants. Um, and what we have had is nearly 700 subvariants, And now almost all of them are recombinants. In other words, two previous subvariants have got together, had a baby, and it's a mixture of the two. And the two ones that are currently dominating Australia are XBB.1.16, which is called Arcturus, and XBB.1.9. Here's what's happening with weekly cases. As we saw at the beginning of uh, January 2022, we had the original Omicron BA.1 major outbreak. Then we had BA.2. And out of interest, it was a double peak, which I think was caused by Western Australia coming into the picture a bit later on. Then we had the BA.45 outbreak, uh, which was in uh, August of last year. And then uh, over the Christmas period, we had this quite unusual mixture of uh, variants or subvariants, which caused another peak. And now we've just come through our fifth Omicron wave, which again is caused by a mixture of these recombinants. Um, I've put a circle around it because look how small that wave is. It's, we, we perhaps call it a wavelet, it's tiny. 
Um, I'll, I'll just say a little bit about the reproduction number. Um, the effective reproduction number basically is how good or bad we're doing. Um, if, there, if it's greater than one, it means the epidemic is increasing at an exponential rate, less than one, decreasing at an ex exponential rate, equal one, pretty much endemic or numbers grumble along at the same rate. This is what it's looking like at the moment. Every time that ref breaks one, we've got a peak, and every time it drops below one, the peak is dying out. And you can see we've just come through our, our fifth wave and the numbers are now dying out. Um, now this is hospital patients, so patients who are in hospital with COVID-19. Look at the number of patients in hospital with COVID-19 now. It's huge. How does that compare with the number of actual diagnosed cases? Well, the answer is it doesn't. And the reason is that hardly anyone is getting tested now, even though lots and lots of people are ending up in hospital. We can show this by looking at the percentage of uh, hospitalised patients uh, who, who were diagnosed. Um, in, at the beginning of this year, it was about 3%, and now it's more like 6 to 8%. Now, Omicron subvariants have not become more deadly. What's happening is we're simply not seeing the cases because no one's getting tested, but we are seeing the hospitalizations. This is weekly deaths. So we've got now about 200 deaths per week from COVID-19 in Australia. That is 10 times the number of deaths from motor vehicle accidents. Yet we're supposed to wear seatbelts when we drive, but we have to take no precautions with COVID-19. And the question is, why not? I thought I'd show you this. Lots of people try and compare flu and COVID-19. And the interesting thing is that last year, the, um, the, the case fatality rate was very similar. It was a bit higher in COVID-19, but nonetheless, it wasn't too far off for flu. But look at the difference in actual deaths themselves. COVID-19 is now one of the leading causes of deaths. And the reason is not so much the, the severity of it, but the fact that so many people are now getting infected. This is something that really does worry me. We have now, we have now got, nearly got 500 major outbreaks in aged care homes, 500. 100 in Queensland. And 50% of all aged care residents aren't up to date with their vaccine. Why not? What's our government doing? What are we doing? This simply shows the percentage of people who've had their first, second, third and fourth dose. The third dose or the booster shot has been around 70% now for months and months and months, and it's not increasing, and it's a worry. But this is even more worrying. This looks at people who've been vaccinated and shows you when they had it. And the 65 plus, only 40% have had their last dose in the last six months. So 60% of all elderly people are basically unprotected. It's a disgrace, it really is. What's going to happen in the future? Three potential scenarios. The first is that the current pattern of these Omicron subvariants keeps going. And we see wave after wave, hopefully getting a bit lower each time until eventually we end up in an endemic situation. That's probably one of the best case scenarios. But we could, at any time, get a new variant coming along, which will be called Pi, which is the next Greek letter along. And if that happens, there's a toss up as to whether it's more severe or less severe because uh, new variants come along and get their, their, their gain by being increased transmission. They could be either more or less severe. 
Another alternative is we could have better vaccines that come along that gives us greater protection and potentially stop transmission. So I'm going to talk a little bit about vaccines now. Um, WHO has changed its recommendations for priority for vaccination. I don't know whether you're aware of that. But they've broken it up into three groups. And this is the highest priority group. And this is basically vulnerable people. And what they're saying is vulnerable people, including frontline health workers, which a lot of you are, they should be getting their, their normal uh, two doses, then a booster shot, and then an additional booster shot every six or 12 months, depending on the individual circumstances. However, if you look at the majority of people who are healthy adults, they're suggesting that just the primary series and a single booster is sufficient. So people who are uh, under 60 and relatively healthy, really there's no need for them to get continuous booster shots. But they can if they want, because it's still safe to do so. And in fact, the main reason for suggesting to your patients that they do get that additional booster shots is to reduce transmission and protect vulnerable people. And finally, the lowest priority is for basically for kids. And they say that they really don't need to get vaccinated. They hardly ever get really sick, although some do and some die, unfortunately. But again, the vast majority of adults who catch COVID-19 get it from their kids. And, and those kids have also got grandparents. So it, it might well be worthwhile suggesting that children get vaccinated simply to protect other people. This is just to show you that the current bivalents are much, much more effective than the original um, uh, monovalent um, booster shots. And in particular, the BA45 boosters are a bit better than the BA1 bivalent boosters. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, vaccine safety. There's an awful lot now on social media and in the press and so on about vaccine safety. Um, what we've had is 138,000 adverse event reports um, reported to TGA out of 67 million doses, which is the reporting rate of about 0.02%. But the interesting thing is that the majority of the reports were for Pfizer. Um, the vast majority of those adverse events were minor. More importantly are deaths. Um, we've had so far 985 notifications to the TGA via possible death, and each one of those has been uh, looked at by a medical panel. And all out of those 985, only 14 have been judged to be related to COVID-19. Nearly all of them were for AstraZeneca, which we don't use anymore. And I would note that we have had no deaths so far, vaccine-related deaths this year, and there have been no deaths in children. What's happening with vaccines uh, in the future? Well, WHO uh, COVID Vaccine Composition Advisory Committee have now recommended that we move from a bivalent vaccine to a monovalent, and in particular one based on um, a recombinant XBB.1, probably XBB.1.16. And the reason they say that is that they don't think there's a single human in the world now that's still infected with the original Wuhan strain. And therefore, there's simply no point in including it in future vaccines. Um, the uh, Federal Drug Administration, FDA, have now basically agreed with that, as have the European Commission. And I would imagine that come about September, that new vaccine will be available in the States and probably in Australia before the end of the year. The other thing that's happening is there are trials in Australia at the moment of needless vaccines, and that includes jet injectors and patches. 
Novavax are currently trialling a, a combined COVID-19 flu vax, and that's going on as we speak in Australia. Um, th there have been uh, at least three live attenuated vaccines that are being used at the moment. Um, a French company, Valneva, have actually produced one which is being used in the UK at the moment. There are several companies working on nasal sprays and inhalants. Um, we have the Indian company Bharat Biotech, which has got a nasal spray that's been approved for use in India. And the Chinese company uh, CanSino have got an inhalant that's been approved in China. And we still really need to see the results for this because they have the potential to stop transmission. So when I said that um, vaccines could be a future scenario where we could actually stop transmission, this is why. And finally, there are several groups around the world, in, um, including the Walter Reed group, who are looking at broad-spectrum COVID-19 vaccines. Um, I, don't, I don't think they'll be ready for at least another two or three years, but I'm very optimistic. And in fact, there's um, a French company now that is trialling a broad-spectrum flu vaccine, and it's recruiting in Australia now. So these are, these are some very exciting things that could happen in the future. Now, what about antivirals? Well, as we all know, the, the, the first-line antiviral, which we can get into our vulnerable patients, is Paxlovid, and it's very effective. Um, the trouble is that often you can't give it to patients with renal impairment or hepatic impairment, and it has lots and lots of uh, reactions with other drugs. So the second-line one that everyone's been using is molnupiravir. And in fact, a recent survey by HealthEd uh, it was 1,500 GPs, and it found that over the previous week, 31% had prescribed Paxlovid and 27% Molnupiravir. But here we have our current guidelines saying, don't use it. Don't use Molnupiravir. Why? Why, Why shouldn't we use Molnupiravir? Well, the reason is it, it comes from uh, the, uh, something called a panoramic trial. And the panoramic trial showed that um, molnupiravir simply didn't work. It did not reduce hospitalizations or deaths, but it did lead to faster recovery time and reduce viral load. Uh, but the trouble with the panoramic trial is that the mean age of patients was 56, which is way younger than we would normally prescribe to in Australia. And in fact, a paper that's only just been published also looked at molnupiravir, uh, and this was in the US veterans, so it was a much older group. And in fact, the average age was 66. What they found was that um, molnupiravir did, in fact, uh, reduce death rates but not hospitalisation. And then another study had just been published as well. This again was on veterans. And the average age for this study was 74. So this is much more like the sort of patients you would be getting and giving molnupiravir to. And here's what they found. They found, that Pax, uh, they found that molnupiravir was effective against both admissions and deaths, but not as good as Paxlovid, but nonetheless still much, much better than a placebo. So I think the answer here is that, you know, if you want to give your patients something and they can't have Paxlovid, then I probably would go with molnupiravir. Not only does it seem to be at least a bit effective, but also we know that giving any antiviral reduces the risk of long COVID. The other thing with all these antivirals is you have to get it into patients quickly. If you can get it into them within the first five days of symptoms, it's 80% effective against hospitalization. But if you get it in within the first 24 hours, it's 90% effective. 
So that's one of the big issues with these um, antivirals is you have to get them into patients quickly and this is becoming more and more difficult with PCR testing stations closing and trying to get access to a GP willing to give out a, a path form for it. Um, there's lots and lots, a couple of hundred antivirals being in clinical trials at the moment. Here's one for, as an example. This is pegylated interferon lambda. It was found to half the rate of hospitalizations and ED visits, but it hasn't been licensed yet or authorized. But this is the sort of thing that we're seeing now. And I'm almost 100% certain we'll be getting more antivirals this year. Now, long COVID. Uh, as I pointed out, um, we're getting a huge percentage of patients ending up with long COVID. Uh, the WHO definition says it has to be uh, symptoms that happen um, three months after your initial infection and lasting for two months, which is fairly, fairly broad. Um, this is a brilliant overview of everything we know about long COVID so far. So it's a nature review, and I highly uh, recommend that you, you read it. It covers everything from what symptoms, um, pathogenesis. As I said, everything you can think about long COVID is in here. This is a new paper that's only just come out. And this is a group who basically decided to try and make a, a much more tighter definition of long COVID, which they call post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, or PASC. And what they did was they took thousands of patients who, who, who basically had long COVID and looked at the symptoms they were getting. And they were able to break them up into 12 groups. And these are the 12 groups they found. Then each of these was given a score, and then they summed the score up. And basically, they worked out what percentage of all patients would be, get, uh, would be described as, as PASC, or we'll call it long COVID. And they found that it was about 10%. So my estimate is between 5 and 10% of everyone infected is going to end up with some long-term health problems. Here are some of the risk factors that we know uh, are risk factors for long COVID. In particular, the one at the bottom, the more times you get infected, the more chance you have of ending up with long-term health problems. How do we prevent long COVID? Well, probably the best way of not getting long COVID is not to get COVID. And I'm a proud Novid myself. Uh, metformin appears to do something. It certainly it seems to reduce hospitalization, oh, sorry, reduce uh, the incidence of long COVID. Uh, having been vaccinated, uh, protects you. And as I said, antivirals protect you. And just some personal thoughts now. And the first is about secrecy. Why the secrecy? When was the last time you saw wastewater results? I mean, you know, journalists who I speak to tell me that you need a freedom of information request these days to get any data from any state or territory government, or TGA or Otagi for that matter. And the trouble is that we have all these conspiracy theorists, you know, and this is just grist the mill for them. I simply don't understand why they're making everything so secret. Um, finally, I'd like to talk about what you can do. And the reason I say that is that our state and territory governments have basically given up on vulnerable patients. I told you before, we've got only 40% of them, you know, are, are up to date with their, their vaccinations. We've got half of residential aged care uh, residents who aren't, who aren't fully up to date with vaccinations. Where's the messaging telling people why they should be up to date? Where's the messaging telling vulnerable people where, when, and how to wear face masks? It's simply not there. 
the government is doing nothing. The government is acting as though there's no COVID anymore. And there's a lot of it around, as you're probably aware. So what can you do? Well, the thing is that GPs are in a wonderful position to help their vulnerable patients. You can tell them why they should have antivirals, why they should be up to date with their vaccination, okay? where they can get a PCR test. Okay? Why, why, you know, why should they wear a face mask? Which one should they wear and where should they wear them? The thing is, vulnerable patients tend to have often low levels of health literacy. All it would take is for you to send them a letter explaining all this information in simple terms. And that would be a huge help to vulnerable people um, and hopefully reduce the number of people dying from COVID-19. So I do plead with you, um, the government isn't protecting your vulnerable patients. It's something you can do and I urge you to do it. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.